This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. You know, podcasting, people think, oh, it's easy. You just pick up a recorder and start recording your conversation. It's not like that. Like I was working with somebody, just giving some advice to a friend of mine who was starting a podcast. And I sat with this person um, in the first episode and I had to constantly, and I was being very constructive with my critiques and my instruction. I don't like to give negative criticism, but I would say, okay, let's say that thing that you just said again, but with a little bit more power, a little bit more emphasis and excitement. Like you have to always be aware that every single second you're competing with a million amazingly talented kids on TikTok for eyeballs and attention. And you have things to say. You do too. You have more things to say, James. And you have to be able to express them in a way that the listener wants to hear what comes next. That's so true. And I've actually heard in radio, this is like a no brainer. If there's like a one second pause, if you're reading a script and you're trying to get something out and you stumble over a word, you're trying to think about it. You just like had a million people change the station on you on radio. Well, that's very that's very optimistic about the state of radio today, <laughs> but but maybe you lost ten people out of a hundred. But uh, uh, podcasting is is bigger, certainly bigger than radio now, and and is bigger than a lot of TV. So, like most TV shows, mo TV still has the glamour, but you know, oh, I have a TV show. But uh, TV has fewer viewers than uh, per show than it ever did, and and fewer. Mo like when you watch CNBC, maybe five thousand other people are watching the most popular shows. How cool is it? Like fifty years from now, a hundred years from now, rather than just reading three or four books that may have been written by some of the people that would be influential minds of this generation, you'll be able to go and listen to thousands of podcast episodes with them and hear everything they said. It's like having your favorite person as a mentor, like programmed in your brain all the time. It's true. Like, and I wonder if you feel this, like, you know, I've done a podcast for a long time now and I've talked with so many smart and, and intelligent people and and people have been inspirations to me and heroes of mine and so on. I've been very grateful. And sometimes I wonder, has my life changed because of this? Like having, you know, first off, when you have someone on your podcast, you usually read their books, watch their shows, watch their other interviews to prepare. So you learn from that. And then you get to ask them any question you want for one, two, three hours. And, and sometimes you have them on again. You could, have, you, could, you could learn more from them. So I wonder, like this has been like, like, 20 times my university learning. I've done so many podcasts and I never showed up for class when I went to college anyway. And each thing is like a class from my, from the best professor ever. I wonder how it's changed my life. You can never really know how you would have been different otherwise. And when, and when you're interviewing someone, it's the most flow state or focused I am in anything that I do. If I'm playing chess, I'm refreshing my email, looking at my text messages, checking Instagram, thinking, doing other stuff. You're doing that while you're playing chess? That's why I'm only like a level 1700 player, right? <laughs> try, try playing games with nothing else open on your computer. You're, and, and just as a statistical experiment, let, this is very interesting, James, because now we know you do this. So we, we, always wanna, we always ask the question, and, and media asks this question, what 
negative effect does social media have on our focus, on our attention, on our careers? But, and the beauty of chess is that there's a statistical rating system. So you can actually know, you can learn how much does social media, James Quandell, um, how many times social media James Quandell will lose to non-social media James Quandell every three games or every 10 games. Like you will know that statistically. Do the experiment, shut everything off, play an hour of chess without, you know, maybe even start a new account so you see what your new rating is and and have non-social media James Quandell play. And let's see, is it one standard deviation away? Is it two standard deviations away on your performance? The question is, is why... I am the guy that wrote an article about quitting social media. I know how distracting it is for me doing the things I really want to do. And, I, and I'm using social media loosely. It could just be refreshing my email. It could be just checking on my favorite news sites, whatever. Why? Like, why do we keep doing something we absolutely know 100% is the wrong thing to do? Well, I mean, this is a very important question. People know, we know for a fact that a lifetime habit of cigarette smoking on average will decrease your, your lifespan by about 11 years. So why do people every day smoke? And I don't blame them for smoking. They're, they're, it's pleasure. I'm sure it's pleasurable for them. I'm sure it's addictive. And, and I'm sure they know they should stop, but they don't. And you, you see the effects. Like Compare like the 1970s to now. So it's 50 years later. Uh, people just looked older. And it was because, why was it? Because they had less exercise? No. It was because they were less happy? No, they were probably happier then. Uh, for all I know, I don't know. But one thing we do know is that they were, they were smoking more then. And I don't know if you remember the show Sanford and Son. Oh, yeah. Um, with the comedian Red Fox was the star. He was Sanford. If you don't know it, Google it. Look at how, guess how old. If you just Google it and see a picture of Sanford and Son, guess how old Red Fox is when he made that show. And I have asked this question to quite a few people and they say, oh, he's about 70. <laughs> he's 52 years old when he makes that show. He's younger than me. And he looks like an 80 year old man. They're being nice when they say 70. And it's because I can't think of any other reason other than the fact, and I don't even know for sure, but I'm assuming he smoked and people smoked, you know, three or four packs a day. I think if you asked most people that smoke, if you, if I could wave a magic wand right now and you were a non-smoker and you never smoked and you never knew how good it may make you feel, would you do it? I think they would say yes. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely. Look, I am, I've never really talked about this because it's not, I don't feel it's that important to what people know about me, but I am addicted to a physical substance. So in 2010, um, this was right after the financial crisis, I had moved from New York City to about, 40 miles north of New York City to be closer to my kids. And I suddenly, I don't know what happened. I suddenly got really scared. I thought, is this removing me from New York City, the, the, the birthplace of many opportunities that have happened to me? And is this, am I going to go broke now? Because every other time I moved, made a big move like this, I went broke almost immediately afterwards. And so I became like almost weirdly OCD. This had never happened to me before. I, I could never sleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I would go downstairs and I would start adding numbers up. Like how many more, you know, what if I stop making money? How many more months do I have to live? And, you know, I ended up doing okay, but I was, I would wake up in the morning and then there was no, well, there was just notes with numbers added up all over the place. It was like in that movie about John Nash, where people suddenly realized how crazy it was. I realized how crazy it was. 
So I went to a psychiatrist and he said, how can I help you? And I said to him, look, the only thing that can help me is if you write me a check for $1 million right now. <laughs> and he said, honestly, I don't think that's going to help you. And what he did think would help me was an anti-anxiety drug called Klonopin. And he prescribed it for me and I took it and it really did help. It was like, it was like this, I would take the Klonopin and within a very short amount of time, like a half hour, suddenly there was like a wall in my brain that I couldn't go beyond where my anxiety lived. So previously that part of my brain was, I was flush with anxiety, but Klonopin like stopped the anxiety. The problem is he, in order for it to work for me, cause I had so much anxiety, he had to prescribe a big amount. And within just a small, a few weeks, I was like, okay, I don't think I need this anymore. I have no anxiety. Even when that's the half-life of the pill runs out, I don't get more anxious. So he said, look, you can't, you probably gonna have a hard time getting off of it. And I'm like, no, it's no problem. I'm just going to stop cold. I stopped cold. The next day was a great day. I, I wasn't taking the pills. So I had a lot more energy. I didn't have uh, anxiety. Day two, it was like I was sitting in my chair and I felt like my brain was scrambled all over the planet. Like I thought I couldn't like exist. Like I was just dissolved in not only anxiety, but even worse. Like I was having like daymares and I said, okay, I need to stop in stages. And there's a whole process. Clonopin is like the most, is more addictive than heroin, it turns out. And I didn't know this. It's the most addictive substance out there. It'd be nice if he let you know that before you, you know, were prescribed it. Maybe. I do appreciate that it did solve my anxiety. And so it's, so it's a very slow process. It's basically you, you take your starting dose and you every six months eliminate half a milligram. So my starting dose was four milligrams. And so it would be like four years to get off of it. But uh, it's 12 years later and I'm still on half a milligram because it's very, very hard. And every time I even, I stop that half a milligram, I can't sleep and I get back into that state. You could die from, from withdrawal of clonopin. And uh, uh, so I'm scared to take that last step, honestly. And I don't even know if I want to because I'm afraid I'll have overwhelming anxiety and I won't sleep. So whenever I stop, I stop for a few days and I notice withdrawal symptoms and I get right, right back on. Why do you want to stop? Because there are long-term negative side effects and I don't want to be addicted to a medication. I do think, honestly, for instance, take chess as an example. I do think it affects chess playing because what happens is you should be anxious when you play a game of chess. Is this person, did this person just make a move that's about to checkmate me, to kill me on the board? You should be anxious. And so I think even that small dosage, first off, it doesn't, because I have have such high tolerance now, I've been taking this for 12 years, it doesn't really solve my anxiety, but you know, it, it, it might, it, it prevent, it still probably prevents me from being a little anxious and maybe I need that to improve. And, uh, you know, with, with writing, it was the opposite. With writing, it's bad to be anxious while you're writing. And so in 2010, I was writing 3,000 words a day at least. And I felt I needed it to, to survive, to, to write. And my writing was better than ever at that point. And I attribute that to having reduced anxiety. But uh, uh, now I think I want to be more anxious than I am because, you know, I'm making this comeback after 25 years of no tournament chess. I'm making this comeback. And 
maybe it need, it's good to be a little anxious. So I, I do want to stop for, for for short-term and long-term reasons. Do you feel anxious when you have a guest that you admire that's going to be coming on your show and you're going to have a conversation with them? Yeah, or I mean, I'm always nervous before. I've done 1,200 podcasts and many of them with just absolute heroes of mine. Like, you know, everybody from Richard Branson, Sarah Blakely, Gary Kasparov, uh, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, uh, I could go on and on naming, naming literally like heroes of mine that I grew up just adoring. And I get very anxious. I don't get super anxious, but I just like one, I get nervous. Like, how am I going to do this interview and how am I going to make it conversational and, and interesting? And will they like me? <laughs> will they like talking to me? And will they want to come back up? Will they want to be my friend afterwards? <laughs> and uh, so yeah, I get, I get very anxious before most podcasts. Like I'm about to, well, let me ask you advice on this. Like in a few hours, I'm going to do a podcast with someone who's been on my podcast many times and he's been a friend, but a couple of years ago, I sort of stopped responding to him for a while. Uh, and I know this is going to come up in the podcast. I haven't talked to him in, in years and um, but he has a new book out and I enjoyed the book and he's going to come on my podcast. I'm going to have to explain to him why I stopped responding to his emails and it's going to be awkward. Like, how would you address that? Well, it's not just him, right? It's not like you singled him out and I'm just not going to reply to this person anymore, right? That's true. It was a, it was a category of, of people. So there's that. It wasn't like you singled this person out individually. So I would, I would think about that. But it was based on individual actions that he did, which he will be, he will be defensive about. So, to, oh man, that's kind of, that's tough. Are you afraid to talk about it? Are you, do you want to tell him why you stopped talking to him? Does he know? He doesn't know, no. Um, and would it be helpful if he did know? Well, helpful is an interesting word. Like if you tell someone, when's the last time you, you gave someone advice about something and they listened to you? It's very uncommon. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, I, I, you know, I had, I had COVID a couple of years ago, like, like everybody. And I had a bad case of it. I ended up in the hospital and it was very painful. And when I kind of tweeted about it while I was still recovering, um, a lot of people wrote me and wrote very nice things and said, Hey, I hope you're feeling better. But some people wrote me with just one question. Are you vaccinated? And I've been a pro, my, my mom had polio unfortunately, right before the vaccine was invented. And I'm very, you know, I wish she, if she had been invented, the, I, I wish she had been born the day after the vaccine had been invented. It would have made her life so much better. And I feel really bad for her all the time. She can't walk since she was two years old mm. and, or, or nearly can't walk. And, uh, and a lot of people have been helped by vaccines. And I, I even, I even interviewed RFK Jr. once, but couldn't, it was the one podcast I ever canceled airing because he went on this whole anti-vax rant. And yet at the same time, it's important to respect other people. And so I understand sometimes why other people, look, the truth is I should be vaccinated, but I'm not. And so people, when they ask me this, they're really asking, are you Republican or Democrat? Or are you in my camp or this other camp? Right. And why am I not vaccinated? I believe in vaccines and I believe the vaccine would have probably prevented me, maybe it would have prevented me from getting COVID. Now, of course, the evidence is all over the place. But 
The reason I didn't get it was not for politics. I was simply lazy and I didn't want to go to the store and get a shot. <laughs> I just didn't want to do it. And I hadn't had COVID yet. I'd been around a ton of COVID positive people and never gotten it. So I thought I had like some good immunity and I got a bad case of it and regretted not being vaccinated. But it was really out of laziness, not out of political beliefs. Every day I scheduled it and never did it. Your show, when we first were, were on the Make You a Millionaire segment, and I mentioned I wanted to have a podcast and I'd been talking about it with friends for like two years and never doing it. So you did give me advice and I actually did take it. So I guess it happens once in a while. But yes. we talked about gotcha podcasts versus like a podcast that's safe. Like you want the guests yeah. to feel safe to come on that you're not going to try to like catch them. And the question I would have would be, if you brought this up, would that turn it into sort of like a gotcha type conversation? Yes, and I would never do that during the podcast. I would do it before beforehand because you know why? I respect him. I love his book that just came out. It really is a great book to read. I never hold... There's a difference between, you know, I want people to listen to my podcast to to learn positive things, to learn interesting things, to be entertained. And I guess gotcha is a kind of entertainment, but you're not going to win the respect of your guest if you do that. They're never going to come back on. And it's a great benefit to have repeat guests. So for instance, I had on a few months ago, this one general who was the highest ranking White House official at one point advising the president of the United States on China. Um, and when all this recent news happened with China, I mean, there's all this stuff going on with Taiwan and everything. I asked him, hey, you don't have anything, you don't have a book to promote, but can you go back on, come back on and really explain to me, I don't know what's happening with China, really explain to me and my listeners, what is, you are the most informed person on the planet about what's happening. Can you come back on even though it benefits you zero. And he said, of course, and he came on the next day. And that's the benefit. When I need to know things, I learn them because they come back on the podcast because I'm always respectful of, of their time and, and what I learn from them and what they have to teach. If I did gotcha things, then, you know, then it's just a gimmick. Well, and people are then going to be tense or we were talking about anxiety. They're going to be anxious to come on your show. Well, what dirt is he going to pull out on me? What do I have to prepare for? And you just want, at least from me being a listener for your show for a long time, the reason I love it is because it is just a genuine conversation that doesn't feel like there's an agenda. And there's an agenda everywhere. So it's nice to have a place where there's finally not an agenda. And, and you know, I, I have been on some gotcha podcasts and uh and i it was uncomfortable but but i welcome the op i'm not ashamed of anything i've ever done or even if i am i am happy to talk about it and explain it and and try to think out loud as long as the person's not doing it in this exploitive way but really wants to know why did you do this why did you do that i want an opportunity to explain things so i don't mind going on gotcha podcasts but it is uncomfortable and uh, uh, you know, and I think a lot of people don't like going on them. So do you have a problem with the term self-help? Have you, like, do you describe your podcast or your books or anything as a self-help genre? Never, never, absolutely not. Only because what I write, I think of myself more as a writer than as a, any kind of other category, like a business person or a self-help person or an investor. 
I started writing in 1990 and it really cost me a lot. Like I gave up a lot. I was, I, I became obsessed. I'd wake up very early. I'd write 3000 words a day starting in 1990. And, uh, I was rejected so many times. I mean, I would write novels and send them out 40 rejections. I'd write a short story, send it out to magazines, 40 rejections. I just added up recently. I probably had more than 2000 rejections in the first five years I was writing because I was stupid enough to think my writing was good then. And uh, I was thrown out of graduate school because I was basically not going to class and just writing. I lost relationships, family, you know, just because I loved writing and, and figuring out what it takes to, to communicate. Something that there are many communicators in the world, but few people know how to communicate. And I should have said that about where there are many writers in the world, but few people actually know how to write. I think it applies to both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it applies to both. Well, I'm curious why you loved writing so much when it's so hard. Yeah, so so what's important to me when I write a book, like let's say Choose Yourself, which I am so grateful. People come up to me still to this day, it's nine years after the book was published. People come up to me and said, I reread Choose Yourself every year. It changed my life. I was able to quit my job doing X, Y, or Z, and now I do the things I love. And thank you so much. You're, you know, and I'm really grateful for for that. But it wasn't a self help book. It was a book about my. I wrote my story. I consider it, you know, my literary effort to to be. It's your self help, and right. like someone else gets to just read it. Yeah, it's it's how I helped myself. It's like a story, and that's how I view all of my books. It's a story about me, really. That's what every book is ultimately. And if you when you pretend it's not a story about you, then it becomes an arrogant book. And then it becomes a prescription that nobody's going to do, like a, a self-help book. And, you know, life will tell you to do hard things. You don't need a book to tell you to take cold showers to experience what, you know, the difficulties in life. Life will give you enough difficulties without, you know, self-help prescriptions. And you have to figure them out on your own. And so I write how I figured it out on my own some of the time, not all of the time, but some of the time. And, you know, if that helps other people kind of unlock how they can figure things out, that's great. I mean, novels have done that for me as well as self-help books or business books. So you, it takes many, it takes many different things to, to solve life's issues because life's pretty difficult. And, you know, I like that, like you say, oh, I gave you advice and you followed it. No, you didn't. You wanted to do a podcast. You already knew how to do one. You, you wanted to do one. It's called the James Quandall show. It's not called the show inspired by James Altucher. <laughs> uh, it's you, you, you did that. So, you know, and, and I was just a small piece of your story about that. So I, I don't consider myself self-help. Do or, you identify more as an encourager then versus self-help? No, I identify as a, a writer. Okay. Yeah. And again, I'll read the book, The Old Man in the Sea, and it will... It could be a self-help book to me. So even though it has nothing to do with self-help, whatever you read and whatever you absorb, you can use to benefit your life. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, 
I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So to write a book like Choose Yourself as not a self-help book and just a story of your trials and tribulations and how you got to where you are, it doesn't, you don't have to be an expert you just have no. to tell your journey, right? No, that's why, for instance, I've turned down the opportunities to write expertise sort of books, like journalist books. I'm not a journalist. Now, some people like to be journalists and they write great books about, you know, oh, do a book about the Civil War. Okay, now you have to research people, you have to interview people, historians, you have to go to places, go to conferences, hear, you know, all this stuff. You do research, you do journalism. I don't really research my books because I'm writing my, I'm writing a story. I'm a storyteller. And that's what I identify with. Now, if I'm writing about something like, for instance, let's say Bob Dylan wins the Nobel prize, which he did. And, and then he acts in this very interesting way afterwards that I'm fascinated by. Okay. 
Now, out of my own personal interest, I'll read his memoirs. I'll listen to his music. I'll read all his interviews. And then I will write what, why I find this so fascinating. It's not an article about Bob Dylan, although you might learn a lot about Bob Dylan reading it because I learned a lot, but it's ultimately a story of why I'm so fascinated by what he did. So you have to say what he did. Why did he do it? What was his background that made him do it? Why was this interesting to me? And that becomes a personal story about Bob, a personal story about me, about Bob Dylan. I just use that as an example, but I, I've written a lot about pop culture because I love, I love pop culture. I've written about everything from Battlestar Galactica to Bob Dylan to whatever. And, uh, uh, but it's ultimately always my story. And then it doesn't, you don't have to, I love that way of storytelling. Cause I, I just listened to your episode with Daniel, I think it was Lana from the, uh, the chess improvement. Yeah. And you, instead of always just using examples of how you're trying to improve in chess, you gave stories of how Judith Polgard does it and other people do it that you've learned and then tried to implement yourself. I think that gives so much more weight to what you're saying. Yeah, and, and even more, I try to make it as much of a story as possible. It wasn't just saying what Judith Polgard did to be great. And for people who don't know, she's the greatest woman in the history of chess it's important to say that she's the greatest woman, even though that, you know, some people are, why can't she just be a, one of the greatest ever? She is one of the greatest ever, but it's, it's to, to read her history and how she had to deal with sexism is very interesting. But I personally asked her, how did, what should I do to get better? And then she told me her story of how she did it as a kid. So it's, it's part of my story now is, is asking her for help. Does it, is it a conscious thing for you when you're writing to be controversial or are you no, just and a controversial and, person? And you know what? This also has come up recently for me quite a bit where friends tell me, friends will tell me sometimes, James, you write stuff. To, I know you're just writing that to be controversial. And if you, if you write like that, you will be, you will have the shortest career on the planet because then it's, and then I have to wonder like, if is my writing not good enough in some way that people just think I'm trying to be controversial or maybe they were just sensitive to the topic. And, and so they wanted to believe that I was just doing this for opportunity, but you could be controversial about anything. Like I could write about something I'm not interested in, but take a controversial view and maybe get some views on it. But the best writing comes when I love something and I have an opinion that differs from other people. And I want to express it because I love something too much to let this opinion be unheard. So for instance, during the pandemic, I had real concerns about the state of New York City. So I wrote an article for my readers, but it became much bigger, called New York City is Dead Forever, Here's Why. The title was aggressive, yes, but people won't read it if the title wasn't aggressive. People say, don't judge a book by its cover. I absolutely judge a book by its cover because it's the first thing I see. <laughs> you have to do, I'm only gonna pick up the books that have interesting looking covers because I'll my brain will just ignore the others. The only people that tell you not to judge a book by a cover have a really crappy book cover. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, that's true for at least half my books. But uh, uh, but I in the article, which was at least viewed over 30 million times, maybe it was like one of the, somebody told me it was probably one of the last viral written articles ever. Like, uh, And then all sorts of people who I had no relationship with or whatever would like Rush Limbaugh. Okay. I'm not, I don't, I've never listened to his show. I mean, he's dead now, but I, I never listened to his show. I don't know anything about him. He read my article word for word 
to his 50 million or whatever listeners. Glenn Beck read it word for word on his show. Joe Rogan read it on his show. People would read the article on their show, which is boring, but I'm, I, I think I'm grateful. I'm uh, the type of writer people want to read word for word on their valuable radio time or show time. And so many people got upset at me in New York City and everyone was saying, oh, we know you were just trying to be a troll. Like these were my friends saying this. I'm like, when have you known me to ever do that? Like I care about the problems. New York 60,000 businesses built over generations went out of business in New York City. You know, many people couldn't get treatments for cancer. And I'm not saying they should have shut, they shouldn't have shut down the economy. That's another issue. But I'm saying New York City is going to lose valuable. It's a it takes $100 billion a year to run New York City. You're going to lose valuable revenues if, if you don't figure this problem out now. And now you we're experiencing it. New York City has the fastest moving crime rate in the, in the United States. Uh, a lot of services have not returned because people who did those services left the city. Uh, office occupancy is only at 40%, which means these expensive office buildings are going to go bankrupt. Uh, you're going to collect much fewer tax revenues. You're going to offer less services and there's less reasons than to move to New York City. I was legitimately worried. And nobody took me for my word. I expressed in that article how much I, my experience growing up in and around the city. My, I spent my whole life there. So many opportunities for me there. It was so exciting. And I love the city. I'm very good friends with the mayor of the city. I held a fundraiser for him. I donated money to him. After my article came out, we talked a lot about my article. He came on my podcast and we talked about it and he's doing things about hopefully saving New York City. So hopefully my article had an impact, but so, but my, my business was vandalized. You know, I had a comedy club. It was vandalized. Jay, my producer of my podcast was harassed walking his dog in the street because he was wearing a t-shirt that said the James Altucher show. I was basically driven out of the city. Like people would, were, were sending me death threats. And it was so stupid because they were worried that their real estate values were going to go down is my conclusion. Mostly. Well, they didn't read the article. They didn't read the article because I no was way, only trying to help. Because the article was constructive. Yeah. And, and look, Gary, I made a video trying to explain my article and it got a lot of views. And I, I'm grateful. This is a shout out to Gary Vaynerchuk. He got on the, the phone with me while I was doing the video and kind of coached me through it because he knew this, this was an important issue. And, uh, you know, for, for better or for worse, that article happened and it really changed my life. And and I I got a message today, over two years later, I got a message today trashing me for that article. Like, would people just give it up already? <laughs> like, focus on the problem, not uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah, don't. Yeah, it's like, oh, that building's burning right there. Like, oh, just ignore it. Don't even look. Don't say anything about that building. Like, how is that helpful? <laughs> And you know, you and I before the podcast, we were talking talking about trolls and how it's very easy to say, "Oh, I don't let trolls uh, bother me." I mean, the first kind of hate mail I ever got from a, a troll, and by troll, it really means someone who's doing like an, an ad hominem or a weak sort of attack against you and not really addressing the issues. I never mind when I get a, an intelligent article addressing the issues and that it disagrees with me. But like in two thousand three, I got an article, I got an email, just simply saying. I, I hate your writing because you're you're an ugly Jew, and and it, you know it bothered me at first. But now when I get letters like that, and I still get that exact same letter, it doesn't bother me. Like you get used to some things, but every every new le level of controversy kind of ups the ante on the kind of quality of the trolls. 
And it's it's always an effort to deal with the new category of trolls. I would say the graffitiing of the building and assaulting uh, co-workers in the streets is a whole nother level of trolling. That's I don't even know if I'd put that in trolling. Or how about Jerry Seinfeld uh, writing a, a full, his first op-ed ever, a full-page op-ed of the New York Times, just, again, not addressing the issues. Well, he did address one or two issues, but mostly just eviscerating me and calling me uh, uh, insults. And so, again, a weak attack, which makes him a, tr- a troll. It was an ad hominem attack. And, and it was also a, stro- a straw man attack. Like, a real New Yorker would say this. Like, that's a, a straw man attack where you try to make me in some category that maybe I'm not. And, uh, uh, you know, he was a kind of a, he still is a hero of mine. Afterwards, he came out with a book um, called um, Is This Anything? And it, it described his writing process. And people, people said to me, oh, I bet you hate that book. And I said, no, not at all. It was a great book. I highly recommend it. Like, again, it's very important to not let personal feelings get in the way of truth. And if he truthfully wrote a great book, I will say it. And, and I wrote a review. And I think that connecting with the the guests that you were mentioning that you're going to be recording with, with some disagreements that you've had, maybe, um, that to me is more power to 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 do it and to to say how you feel, but in a constructive way. It's true, but I just don't like awkward conversations. Like this conversation is not awkward. But I you're like a writer, more. so why don't you write it? Why do you have to say it out loud? Well, because we're doing a podcast together. But what if you write it I know it maybe is too too late now, but you write it and say, if you still want to come on after you read this, like, let's do it. But if you don't, I completely understand. It's starting the minute after this podcast ends. <laughs> well, let's just make this one run long. I'll, I'll make some extra time. So when you, I, the reason I ask about controversy is for my own benefit, really, because I don't talk about any of the things I at least, I, I, I say that, but then I'm thinking, I'm like, well, I talk about how I didn't go to college and I wouldn't go to college. And I talk about how I wouldn't go get a regular job. Those are pretty controversial ideas, but they don't, I don't talk about them enough, maybe. I'm not talking about these things that make me different. I talk about what the things I do that almost everyone could agree with. Yeah, and I would think about that because you don't want to write a story that someone has already written because that's not going to make... You want, you know, one of the goals of a writer, some people write just for themselves and they don't care who reads them. I happen to care that my writing is is seen. Probably there's some, you know, status insecurity there. And if you want people to read your writing, you have to write something new. So for instance, in 2005, I, I wrote an article. I was a columnist for the Financial Times. I wrote an article there that I would never send my kids to college. And at that time, that was not in the mainstream conversation. Now it's a conversation every day. Like we're having a conversation right now, but then nobody would agree with me that college was potentially a questionable thing. Now everyone asks the question at the very least. Some people will will fight hard for college and some people will fight hard for no college. But then I got the usual set of, of hate mail and so on and, and people just attacking me and, and blogs about it and, and so on. So, but then it was something new. And, and that's why I was writing it because I was raising kids and it's hard to raise kids and college costs a lot of money. Kids, kids cost a million dollars to raise basically over a 25 year period. And I disagree with that, but that stat, but let's keep going. Oh, right, that might not be true. I don't know. But, um, college certainly is expensive for sure. As, and, and there's a reason for it is because 
it, when you have a system where the the a students are aren't allowed to get rid of debt, the debt in bankruptcy, and b the government backs all the loans and pays the college directly, college have have no incentive to lower tuition. So tuition has risen faster than inflation for seventy years in a row, like not just in general, but for every year it, tuition rises faster than inflation, and there's a, that's a problem, and people need to be aware of it, even if there is value to an education which is another issue, but, uh, you know, cause there's a lot of bad statistics about what the average income is after you graduate college, like really bad statistical studies on this. And I pointed that out as well. And I was even mentioned as an idiot in one of these statistical studies, but they had bad statistics. I point, I studied statistics pretty heavily in college actually. And I pointed out the statistical errors they were making in their, in their research, no response. But anyway, my point is, is that you really, have to wonder inside yourself, what's bothering you today that's happening in the world and write about that. So it might be college, but you're joining a lot of people now. So you have to think of more and more specialized things to make it uh, uniquely your story. So there's other things that are probably bothering you that you really want to express, but maybe you're struggling to figure out how to do it. And, and, but once you do do it, don't hold back. Just be all out. Don't play both sides. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Find a unique way to say it. And and what's your story of it? Like I, the way I wrote that article in two thousand five, which was became I even wrote a book about college ultimately because of this. But I told my story, my experience of going to a decent school, having a lot of student loan debt. You know, I paid for my own college. I paid back all my debt myself personally. But it was but. I had really hard experiences because of college and because of this debt and, and like many people do. And, you know, it, it's, I was able to tell my story in, in order to express my opinion. So I want to give a shout out to your new development that you've been working on for, I think almost a year now, notepad.com yeah. and it's notepd.com. And the other day I went in there and I was writing an idealist and I was writing ideas, I kind of said, oh, I'm not that controversial of a person. I'm like, let me write down some ideas that may be controversial. The page started filling up. There's so many things I think that are completely the opposite of mainstream. I didn't post it on Notepad. I was too afraid. I was like, oh my God. I'm going to get destroyed if I post this. Because it's stuff, because I didn't want to be mean, right? Like some of the things I wrote were just mean. And I'm like, okay. But, but, okay, but that's fair. Like I that's one rule I have with writing is I never write anything mean, but you, there's usually other ways to express stuff. And so I'm, I might need to go another layer of, okay, now how can I say that thing I believe that is uh, in a constructive way versus like just like a rude way? Because the first way I put it, it's like, I don't even know if I want to say it here. Like it's so, I'll just say it. I'm like, when if someone's a lot of times I'm, I'm censoring myself even saying this right now. That's how I need to do this. That, that's okay. It, this is, everything's practice, right? Yeah. Like, so, so practice saying it. You don't have to be as harsh as maybe you think. Maybe find another way to say it that's not so harsh or, or, or say it a little bit more abstractly. Now, that won't be your final finished written article because it, you should be, say what you mean then. But like now it's just practice. So practice saying it. Yeah, one of my ideas is there. It's so often I hear people that don't like their job, but they don't think they can do anything else. Like there's no other opportunities out there, and I'm like, 
Are you kidding me? I could go find you 10 jobs today that you could do. You just have to go and do it. And I get so frustrated when someone's doing something they don't love or they don't even like it and they're saying they don't love it or they don't like it and they don't see that there's other options out there for them. Okay, so write that as a story. Where were you with your friend? Why were you talking about that? What? How did the conversation come up? Uh, uh, why did he think he couldn't do it? What was your response to him then? Just write the story of what happened. Write the story of that conversation and your relationship with that person. Like, I had a very similar uh, post one time. I think this was in 2012 or 2013, where I had a lunch with a friend of mine. And he says, ultimately, what he really wants to do is be a YouTuber, but he doesn't have the right equipment. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? Let me see your phone. And he showed me his phone. This camera is a better video camera than anything Francis Ford Coppola used when he made The Godfather 1 and 2. So you have no excuse. Just do it. Just turn the camera on and do it. It's the same thing reaction you're, you're having to your friend. And I, But I didn't write this to everyone. I wrote this as a story about me talking to my friend. And, and that's how you're able to express it. That because makes a lot of sense. Your harshness is sincere. Your, your passion is sincere and you care about your friend. So that's why you're feeling this passion. It, yeah, exactly. For me, it's, I know, I believe so. Like, that's why I asked if you consider yourself an encourager because I do consider myself an encourager. When I look at my friends that want more, I know they can do it. I know they can do more, but they don't think they can. And that's the only thing holding them back sometimes. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And, you know, it's funny, like we have kids, we all have kids. And sometimes I try to tell my kids what I think they should do. That of course never works. And because my kids are adults, they're, they're, you know, they're range. They're actually, I have stepkids as well. So there's five of them. They all range from 20 to 23 years old. And I hope I'm getting those years right. I apologize to my kids if I don't have a year. They don't know when we recorded this, so. <laughs> <laughs> right, good point. And, um, but I find that over time, you plant seeds by example, and they see the results of your example, and then they, and then they listen. Is there a little bit of, for kids specifically, I was talking with a good friend of mine, um, Jason Wright, he's got the Jason Wright show. And um, oh, yeah. he, we were just talking yesterday about, his kids and do you think it, like you if you see the path for your kid you're their parent it's so clear what they should do but do you have to kind of let them figure it out on their own if, i mean or do you like what what point is it too overbearing that's a really good question uh robin and i have a lot of discussions about this she's a great mom as you know you've had her on your podcast and i mean she really is spends a lot of time thinking about how to be a great parent and uh, I'm a little more hands off. She's very hands on, and 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 I have one daughter, for instance, who always seems to. In New York City, fifty percent of your conversations are about renting apartments, <laughs> and she always seems to be a little too late when her lease is ending about finding the next apartment. She's young; it's only happened like once or twice, but I shouldn't say always. But you know, Robin and I were having the conversation. She was like, "Give her this idea. Give her this idea. She should." Do start looking now. And I, and I said, you know, she knows all this stuff. If I say this to her again, she's just going to be annoyed. But um, what's going to happen is I could, when I talk to her, I feel the 
desperation in her voice, like she's a little scared. This, that fear is what's going to change the behavior. And I always help her with whatever she asks, but I let her find her fear. Otherwise, if she doesn't find her fear, someday it's going to show up unannounced and she won't, she won't know what it is and it'll be much worse. So I think it's good to look, you don't want to throw someone in, in the deep end of the pool and let them drown. You want to do something a little bit more in the middle, but, and I'm always there. I don't say you figured it out yourself. I always answer every question. I provide some suggestions, but not all. Cause I know she's not going to listen anyway. And, and I know bad things are going to happen, but sometimes you just have to let them happen to the, to the kids. And this, I don't say this in a mean way. I love her so much. And I can tell when her voice is tremoring, she's a very happy person, but I could tell when she's about to cry and it kills me. And, but there's nothing else I can do. Like, and she has to kind of go through this. That's gotta be hard, especially from your, like, you know, to use a piloting a term, right? Your, your 10,000 or 2000 foot view. It's like super obvious what she needs to yeah. do. What she needed to do two months ago is super obvious. And you can't steer her ship forever, right? Yeah, I mean, like, like, look, she wants to be a writer. So I don't tell her how to be a good writer. For one thing, at this point, she's probably a better writer than me. But when she was younger, she would show me her stories and ask what I think. So she would ask for my opinion. I, I wouldn't necessarily offer it. And I would say, okay, log on to Google Docs and you sit at your computer and I'll sit at my computer. And I will, with her on the phone or on Zoom or whatever, we'd go over, I would edit her document and tell her why I was doing everything and kind of give her a little class. And that is how she learned, but she had to write the story first. And, and you know, and then when she asked, I finally was able to to offer my opinion, whether she fully accepted it, maybe she did, maybe she didn't, but I think she enjoyed the lesson and the, and the quality time we were spending together. And that's how I approach things. So when she calls me for help on this apartment situation, we have a conversation about it. I offer any help, like I'll be a guarantor. I'll, I'll, you know, say, did you look here? Did you look there? And, uh, but I, but I won't kind of tell her what I think is the best solution because she's probably not going to take that. Instead, I view it as just quality time I'm spending with her. Yeah. And I think that quality time is, is key because you spend quality time with her when she really needs you, you're going to be there and available. And she will know that you'll, you'll answer a question she has. Right. Like for me to say, you absolutely have to do this. This is the only solution. That is not quality time. <laughs> no, that's a direct, for sure way for her to go the exact opposite direction. Right. That's why people don't want to be their parents when they grow up in most cases. And yet my daughter wants to be a writer. My other daughter ultimately left college to pursue her dreams. And, you know, a bit by bit, they, they both have told me completely separately that they want to try stand-up comedy, which is something I did for many years. So how cool is that? I never told them to do it. I never suggested it. And you, you see things happen bit by bit. Nobody wants to play chess, though, because they see that that makes me miserable. I am curious, why don't you talk about 
parenting more on the show? Because before we were recording, we were kind of talking about negativity and positivity in today's environment. And I feel like parenting is the ultimate positivity because it's a way we can directly impact the next generation. I know, but you know, and I do talk, I do write a little about it. I don't do it on my podcast that much, but I do write a little about it. Like my last article on LinkedIn was about parenting, but I don't really think I'm such a great parent. So I don't know if I really have a lot to offer. And I write that, but I wish I, wish I had been a better parent. But you, your, your format of your show is you bring people on who are teaching you things you're wanting to improve in. I mean, for the last year, since you've been back into chess, you've brought in all these chess experts in order to learn more from them. So you could do the same thing with parenting. Yeah, but you know, like I love chess and I love a lot of the topics my guests talk about. I love my kids very much and I love the time I spend with them, but I don't love parenting, if that makes sense. <laughs> So I don't really, I never really, I am a, a father, but I just love my kids. When I first had kids, I didn't want kids. And I was really afraid. What if they grow up to be adults and I don't like them, which could, which could happen. I don't like some people. And, but I love my kids, all of them. And I'm really grateful that I do because who knows what could have happened. But I never really, I never really was the was a reg, was a kind of a a parent, um, and I'm not like a friend to them either. Like I don't do that style of parenting. Like I'm definitely a father to them, but I don't know. I just I'm still figuring it out. I guess 23 years later. So Robin and I did have an episode. So if someone's listening to this and they want to hear more about uh, parenting, we had a fantastic conversation about parenting when we were talking about raising kids. She just lit up. It was amazing. And it's so fun podcasting when you find like that area. Like I didn't actually bring her on with the intention of talking about parenting. I brought her on with the intention of talking about friendship and somehow parenting came up and it's like, oh, we're done with friendship. We're moving on to parenting because this is clearly a passion area. And that's like the most fun part about podcasting when you find those things. Yeah, no, I agree. And that is a passion for her. Like our first date, half of it, we were talking about parenting and we really agreed on a lot of things and, uh, uh, you know, but she really is, has put in her 10,000 hours on that. <laughs> so I want to change gears completely. Cause you mentioned, uh, things you love and chess being one of them. And is it possible to just have too many things you want to learn or too many hobbies or too many interests? Like, can that really be a thing where you can't get good at any of them because you just like too many things? Yeah. So the key is, the, well, if all I had ever done in my life was one thing, let's just say chess is an example, I would be a much better chess player than I am now. And But then that, all I would have done was chess. So there's a give and take. Like it's pleasurable. I'm sure for the world champion of chess, it's a very pleasurable thing to be a world champion of something. I never would have been that. And so I probably, if I all I had done was that, I would be much better than I am now, but would it have made my life as rich as having multiple things that I loved? So every few years, I get really passionate about one thing, and that's what I do three or four hours a day. You can't really do more, so I do it three or four hours a day, and passionate about it. And I like, and and then after a few years, I just suddenly it's done. I lose interest, and so I've gotten pretty good at a lot of th at many things. 
but it's hard to be pretty good at anything. And I've got, I, I feel good about, I'm pretty good at a, at a lot of things. When I'm doing that thing, I always wish, man, I wish I had spent all my life doing this because then I would be much better. But yes. ultimately looking back, like for instance, I did stand-up comedy for six years, performing five, six nights a week. And I got pretty good at it. It was bad at first, I got pretty good at it. Better than the average comedian, I would say, but not great, I would also say. And some people might disagree with any, every part of that statement. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I, and I loved it when I was doing, it. I loved getting on stage and making an audience of strangers laugh. I, I studied it many hours a day. And then I performed many hours a day. I watched videos of comedians every day. I tried to write material every day. And then really I, you get up and perform and that's the way you get better. And, and it's painful. It's very painful because what if, what if the, you're not you're trying new material and the audience doesn't laugh. You have to have a certain psychology of dealing with pain and, and failure on a daily basis. And I wished, oh man, I wish I had started when I was in my teens, like like Dave Chappelle. I'd probably be much better. But you know, I know I know a lot of people who are my age who did start in their teens and they're great, but they didn't become successes because there's a lot more to success than just being great at something. And they're kind of miserable right now. Whereas I have many rich experiences in a lot of different areas. I mean, I start playing chess after a 25 year tournament break, I go back and suddenly there's old friends and there's people also who recognize me from my other activities. And, and it's amazing. It's a different experience. It's a very deep, rich experience for me now, even when I lose, which is very painful to have happen. But I mean, I was, I won the, the senior championship of my state senior being anyone over the age of 50. And so I got to participate in this tournament of a tournament of all the state senior champions. And I represented my particular state and representing New York was John Fatorowicz, who back in 1997 was my instructor. So I got to That's so update cool. with him and, and spend time with him for the first time in 25 years. And we picked up right where we left off in our conversations. And, um, you know, so yes, if I had been doing it all those 25 years, I might be better, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have written choose yourself. I wouldn't have been an investor. I wouldn't have been, you know, column, you know, writer uh, of all these different types of books and stuff. And, you know, I don't know. It's it, the one bad thing might be if you're too overloaded right now, then is then you're trying to be a master of everything and you'll be, end up being no good at anything. And there's always a danger of that. I just wrote that down on my notes, the saying, Jack of all trades, master of none. But I've heard there's another sentence to that that so many people don't know. And the end of that quote, so it's Jack of all trades, master of none, but better than a master of one. You know, I had never, I did not know that. That really is the end of that quote. I don't know how you validate if that's truly the end, but I've seen a lot of posts that that's the end of it. And that makes so much sense to me because that's like me. I can I don't want to be a master of one. I want to be pretty good at a dozen things versus being the best at one. Thank you for telling me that because I'll tell you, I always, whenever I'm passionate about something, I always regret not having spent time earlier in my life at it. And because uh, it feels good to be great at something. And I always wonder, am I a jack of all trades, master of none? But I do like to think that because I've gotten good at one thing and then another and another, I learned, look, and I've written about this in a book called Skip the Line. I, I learned the, the meta art of learning 
which is how to learn something new when at a pretty fast pace. And so learning so many different things and trying to master them um, has given me this extra meta knowledge of how to learn a new domain and interest. And that's something I've done pretty consistently for now for 30 years or more. So I am grateful for, for that. But but do you know what? Sorry to interrupt. I think knowing you, knowing the Skip the Line book, which I wrote an article about it. If someone wants to check it out, just go to quandall.com slash skip the line. What you are, so the master of none, you're a master of learning new things. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. And you know, I've I've been applying those techniques to, to chess, but you know, it's hard. I got I was pretty good at chess. I you know I was a chess master in, in, in 1997 when I was much younger. And it's so interesting coming back to something that you had mastered, quote unquote mastered. I mean, there's there's grand just so people know there's grandmasters, there's international masters, there's masters, and then there's another 14 or 15 categories below that. So I've I got pretty high, but not the highest. And coming back to it after a 25-year break, it's brutal because A, I'm rusty. B, I'm older. So how does age actually affect things like calculation and, and wisdom and so on? And the chess world itself has moved on and has gotten, there's more, there's better coaching techniques. There's computers to help people in, in, in training. There's There's deeper opening theory, deeper end game theory. And there's more prodigies now than there. there was hardly any kids in tournaments when I was a kid. And now half a tournament is kids. So how many of those kids, I was at my chess club on Saturday and I was playing against someone and they were, they were talking about all the kids and how good kids are. And there was these two kids that were there and they were beating some of the people that are regulars at the club. And they were like seven year olds. And what I said was, but will they stick with it? Because they're really good now, but to be great, that kid's going to need to do it for five, to be the best in the world, he's going to need to do it for five more years at this level that he's doing it at. Okay, but they're seven. So by the time they're 12, they're going to, if they're talented, they're going to be masters at that age. If they stick with it. If they stick with it, you're right. But a lot of them do stick with it. I mean, that's why you're seeing a lot of kids show up at tournaments now. They, They stuck with it. You know why? Because here's the reality. So, and in, in, in this is an important thing. I was thinking about this a few years ago. I took a cab and the cab, I said, oh, to the cab driver, we, we just started talking. He mentioned he plays chess. And I thought, oh, very quaint, you know, probably plays with his friends and stuff. And, and he said, yeah, I was the champion of Turkey. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what was your rating? He was an international master. And, and I said, how long did it take you to go from master to international master? And he said, oh man, that was five years of hard work. And... I was thinking to myself, nobody knows the difference between master and international master. Like the average person does not. Sometimes I'm introduced at talks and, and, and even though it says on my bio, oh, he's a chess master, people will say, and he's a chess grandmaster. Like no one knows the difference. And there's better, I stopped playing when I hit the master level for a very important reason. I was starting to get interested in something else and I did not want to go below the rating of master. So I froze it. And it's helped me out a lot. First off, chess got me into college. Chess definitely got me into grad school. I, w- I was rejected from every grad school except one, the one that happened to be making what eventually became the computer Deep Blue that beat Gary Kasparov in chess. And that became my office mate was essentially that computer. So I got into graduate school for chess. I've you know, 
gotten jobs entirely because of chess, 100% because of chess. I won't get into all the stories, but it was 100%. I've sold companies because of chess. I've raised money for hedge funds because of chess. Like it was very helpful to have the title of chess master. And so if I had spent another five years trying to become the next level higher, nobody would have cared. You're right. Nobody would have known the difference. And I would have less knowledge, five years less knowledge in other areas of my life. That said, now that I'm pursuing this comeback, I very deeply regret not spending those five years, but I know that's a regret that will, will pass. So Cal Newport wrote a book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And the whole premise that from my take on that book was knowing exactly when to exchange what the capital you've built in your work experience or your life experience or your hobby or whatever mm, for something I else. I don't remember that from the book. That's interesting. And I feel like you found the right time to capitalize. Like, okay, I'm a chess master. I'll be a chess master forever. That's enough. I actually have these ambitions to be in business and investing and writing and all these other things. Now I can go move on and focus on those. Yeah, no, that's that's very good. Yeah, I think it is important to know when to transfer one set of knowledge into the next thing. And, and now look, I've got a little more, I don't want to say I have more time, but I definitely have more interest in chess. A little bit of it, chess is an escape, um, but it's also an amazingly beautiful game. And sometimes it's hard to appreciate, you know, the work I've already put in. Like, look, I'm one of the top players in my state, for instance, of millions of people who probably play in the state. And uh, but when I'm playing in a tournament against my peers and I lose two games in a row, the, the negative soft self-talk is unreal. Like, oh, I'm a loser. I'm wasting all this time getting good and I just suck. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very painful. It's very painful. You have to deal with it. When you're trying to get good at something that's hard, it's very, the psychology is the most important part. I always tell people with entrepreneurship and investing, psychology is the most important thing. We all know we all know you can make money being an entrepreneur. We all know you can make money being an investor. The, the hard part is not necessarily the investing, although that is hard too. Just as hard, if not harder, is the psychology of, of loss and losing and failure. And not being able to, to understand that is, is very painful. And chess is, in a, is a kind of a laboratory of that, like where it's so specific. It's this game that's incredibly deep and complex and you in the in that microcosm, you get to really ex, ex, experiment with your feelings of failure and your and feelings of self worth and and so on. Uh, it's you know it's a challenge. Does it compare to before you hit publish on an article like the self doubt? Uh, yes. So, uh, but not as much. Like I could always write the next article. Like here's the thing about creating content is that let's say you write a piece of content that is horrible and it fails. Okay, nobody read it. Nobody knows you did it. So then you have the chance to do the next one. But you know, when you chess is so hierarchical that every game you've ever played is baked into your rating, your ranking. And so I played in a tournament recently where I lost a massive number of rating points and I'm like, "Oh, it's going to take me months to gain those back." And uh cuz you know, sometimes improvement is slower than just self-combusting in a day. And, you know, it's, it's, it's scarier actually for me, but going in a tournament than hitting publish on an article. There's so much to chess about just believing you can beat the person you're playing. And that's sometimes why it's really neat to not even know the rating of the person you're playing against. You don't know if they're a 2,500 GM 
or if they're a 1,000 level player beginner, you may figure it out after like two moves or three moves sometimes. But I've actually really enjoyed playing in person at the park and not having any idea how good they are. And I just do the best I can do. And sometimes I play better. Like I, uh, I, I found out later, one of the guys at my chess club was the state champion. And wow. so he's a good chess player. I didn't know that when I was playing him. I just sat down and said, let me just play the best game I can play. What was his name? Do you think I know him? Um, no, I don't think you know him. It was, it was, a, it was a while ago, South Carolina state champion. And um, I'll, I'll send you his USCF, USCF page, but it's just the game I played against him was better than if I sat down and I'm like, okay, this guy's a 1400. I'm just going to beat him, right? You, you make a really good point because when we talk about things like, writing and chess and business and investing and entrepreneurship, the conversation is usually like, oh, you play chess? What's your rating? Oh, you write? Where have you published? How many books have you written? Oh, you're an entrepreneur? What businesses have you started? Uh, did, they, did, they, did you sell them? Did you make a lot of money? But those questions have actually nothing to do with entrepreneurship. Those are just the status, the dressing of entrepreneurship, the status uh, conversations around entrepreneurship. How many books you published? It's just like, a, it, it's, that has nothing to do with the process of writing. That's just the status thing. And it's very important. And I need to learn this. I, I've learned this maybe in other areas, but I am constantly reminded I need to right now learn this in chess where every game you win or lose rating points and ranking, but ranking and rating points have nothing to do with chess. It's something else. It's a hierarchy. Chess is about did you, did, did you play well? Did you play your best? Did you have, like you say, confidence going into the game? Did you feel, did you put in the work to deserve to play this game? Did you study the things you needed to study to, to play this game? And, and you put in the work and now you're going to sit down and you're going to put that, that work and study to use. Are you going to pay attention to what the position is, is telling you to do? Or are you going to slip into bad habits? That's, Playing is the is 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 process. Like that's when you're engaged in the process. I get too obsessed with the status hierarchy of ranking and rating and how many books did I write and how much money did I make and 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 all these and how many people where what clubs did I perform at in comedy and how many people laughed. And so you have to really love the process to get good because nothing else will make you good. Only practicing the process will make you good. You can't get better at chess, for instance, by reading a book. Maybe you'll get some insights, but you can't really get better by reading a book or watching a video. You get better by playing a game and studying that game. You only get better doing something when you do the thing you want to get better at. So how can you take that insight into your next tournament in some way and not have as much pressure in the games? It's a great question. I have to, I have to figure that out. I, like, I have to not... I have to really work on my negative self-talk during a game, like, oh, I'm such a loser, blah, blah, blah. I have to really go into a game thinking I'm going to play my best and, and not just work. I, often I'm, I commit the most evil sin, which is for chess, which is you sit down and you say, well, if I win this game, I'm going to go up 20 rating points, which is what my goal was for this tournament, blah, blah, blah. That has nothing to do with me playing a good game or not. It's not going to motivate me. It's just going to scare me. It's not going to make me play my best. It's going to make me play too cautiously and I'm going to lose. And I don't know what to do. I, I've done it with other areas of my life and somehow or other, I'm, I'm not quite doing it in this area. It's, 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 
anything you want to get good at, there's multiple problems. This is one of my problems right now in chess. And people, I've had lots of conversations. People tell me, focus on the game and and do your best and be confident, be optimistic. You have to be optimistic. You can't say to yourself, oh, I'm playing super grandmaster. I'm going to automatically lose. I've had great games against super grandmasters when, you know, I didn't think about the surroundings. I just thought about the game. And, you know, I, I just have to focus on the game more. You put a tweet pretty recently about how you're sitting down playing chess at a tournament, and it might be eight hours of you just sitting there with your thoughts. And you really got to like yourself to sit by yourself for eight hours with your thoughts. Yeah. Like, how can you make sure before you even show up at that tournament, like, how can you like build as much self-likability and love in? And so that way you're not like, you're not empty going in. Like Emily and I, my wife, we have this term we use. I call it the love meter. And like, I'm like, oh, my love meter is kind of low. And what that means is we need quality time together. We need to turn off the screens. We need to take a walk. We need to hold hands. We need to cook together. We need to like sit and talk. Like I know these things that refill like that love meter. Or for me, it's quality time to give a shout out to Gary Chapman in that book. But what is it for you that going into the tournament makes you love yourself and then so you can feel like you deserve to win that game or at least to play your best and not like be caught up against yourself. And look, this applies to writing. This applies to entrepreneurship. This applies to investing, to stand-up comedy. You can't do anything if there's a demon inside you telling you you're a loser and you shouldn't be doing this. And the more you actually put yourself out there making sales calls, publishing articles, yeah. and ask someone out on a date, and the more you do any of that, the more you feel this, like, am I good enough? Like, if you don't feel that ever, like, you always feel really confident, you may not actually be stretching yourself enough. Yeah, no, it's very important. And so, you know, again, it's, it's, it's practicing the process. And so you literally, and it's hard, like anything else is very hard because people are taught from an early age, or maybe it's a natural human instinct to really not like yourself that much. And you're right, you're right, in chess and in writing also, and, and in many activities, in a tournament, you play a game and you're four hours just sitting there in a room full of people, inches from your opponent, and you can't, you're not allowed even to talk to anybody. You might be cheating, for instance, so you can't talk to anybody. And you sit there and your only company is your thoughts. Now your thoughts are occupied with the game, but often thoughts wander, and particularly if you start losing or they wander in a very bad direction and you have to practice the process. So there's a process of kind of mastering your thoughts and I can't claim to have mastered it, but you have to notice when you're doing negative talk and you have to label it. That's negative talk. It's not me. It's a thought that shows up constantly, maybe too much. And I have to stop it and I have to redirect to either thinking more positively or you can't stop all the negative thinking. It, they come, they they come unbidden. But you have to notice when they arrive, and you have to uninvite them to the party. Yeah. So so and and look, what what practice is that? That that actually is what meditation is. People are fooled into thinking meditation is about oh, I'm going to hit something called enlightenment or nirvana, or I'm going to get magic powers or ESP, or I'm going to be the most peaceful person in the world. No. Meditation also is very painful. Meditation is all about real meditation, not any BS, is all about simply noticing thoughts that arise and 
basically saying hello to them and let them move on. It, and people say meditation is a practice, meaning you have a practice of meditation. But the real meaning of practice is you're practicing for something else. What are you practicing for? You're practicing for the other 23 hours a day when you aren't meditating and those negative thoughts are still coming up and meditation gets you better. It's practice for noticing those thoughts and moving on. Prayer is the same. Prayer is a way when you're, when you're praying to, to whatever God or faith you believe in, it's a way of focusing on something that's loving and kind and compassionate and, and loves you, your faith, most people, their faith, God loves them and, and avoiding the things that get in the way in the middle of the thoughts that come up in the middle of prayer. And so it's a form of meditation as well. And so you have to practice even in a game of chess, you can view it as a meditation. I have to notice, Oh, here, there's that negative thought calling me a loser again. I need to stop that because I'm not a loser. And, and let's focus now on what the board is suggesting here. He's got weak pieces over here. Can I, can I trap them or, or checkmate them or whatever? You just have to pull yourself back and not let those thoughts take it. People think thoughts are their identity, but they, but they aren't. They're something that happens biologically in your brain. And it's a tool that humans used and developed because we were weak in other areas. So we use thoughts to get food, but they're not always useful. They're not who we really are, I believe. And, and, and the evidence is, is just that when you, when you control your thoughts more, you have a better life. I agree with you. And I love the book, um, Do the Work by Stephen Pressfield, where he talks mm. about the resistance. Yeah. Because I don't feel any resistance when I'm just doing my normal stuff. It's only when I'm out of my comfort zone and I'm challenging myself that those, that negative talk shows up, the demons, the, whatever you want to call them. And yeah. that to me is actually a sign I'm going to be growing soon. It's a good thing if I go through it. Sometimes it scares me so much I stop, right? That, that's, a good, that's a good point to view it as a positive that you have that, that challenge. Like I should, that's how, what I will try also. Like, like, view I, like one, of the, one of the reasons I'm interested in chess is because it is like this super powerful micro laboratory of so much that happens in life. And... And of course I love the game or I wouldn't do it, but I love the fact that if I can beat this challenge, that if I can conquer this negative self-talk in this arena, if, that if I can improve in ways that I'm not used to doing in a long time, um, that it will be a life accomplishment for me. And it's something I could write the story about and, and tell others. Cause so many people have told me you can't do this and told me I was delusional and all these things, which maybe I am, but we'll see. But, uh, you know, I do think it's it's good to view, even the negative stuff, it's good for me to view it more as a challenge. And I try to do that, but sometimes I'm just like, what the heck just happened to me? Like, how did I, sometimes I have a good tournament, but sometimes their tournaments are so bad that what the hell am I doing? <laughs> I'm so grateful you came on and chatted about this. And you've just been such a virtual mentor for, to me for so long. And it's just so great now just to be able to chat and continue to learn from you. And um, for those that don't know James Alsher, make sure you check out the books, Choose Yourself and Skip the Line, and also his blog, which he doesn't post a lot on now, but there's yeah. like 5,000 articles on there. You can go back and basically learn or read about any topic you're wondering about. It's on the blog somewhere. And the same with the podcast. There's thousands of episodes and so it's just such a, an honor for, to consider you a friend. And I'm just uh, loving everything you're doing. So keep it up. 
Well, thank you so much, James, for having me on. And again, I really value our friendship and, 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 you know, I'm grateful you have me on the podcast. I'm great. You've been on my podcast. You have to come back on and, uh, you know, let's, let's stay in touch more. Absolutely. Come, come, come on down and play in one of my Tuesday night tournaments. Yeah, I'm going to do that.